Thank you all so much for giving. Thank you for worshiping with us this morning. If you have a Bible, we'll be opening up to Luke chapter 9 today. We'll begin reading in verse number 23 in just a few minutes. Thank you all for, uh, again, for being here and letting your heart uh, be open for the Lord to speak to. And uh, really excited about our conversation today. I believe that God's got a great word for us, important word for us as we conclude what has been uh, about a month-long uh, conversation and series uh, called On Loan. Um, the premise of this study uh, was the idea, if you've been here for, most of you have been here for all of it, was the question, what do you do when you realize life doesn't belong to you? And uh, again, when you realize that, or if you never thought about that, and, and maybe for the first time you've thought about it the last couple of weeks, when it dawns on you that, hey, this life isn't mine, it may feel like mine, and I may have done a lot and acquired a lot and built up a lot, but in reality, it doesn't belong to me. So what do you do when you realize that life doesn't belong to you, that it came from God, and that one day it will return? To God. You know, human nature is difficult to wrap its arms around. Uh, if you were to poll most people, especially believers, uh, nobody is going to challenge the idea that we come from God. If you ask any Christian, any uh, person that says they have faith or believes in God, uh, no one's going to doubt or no one's going to challenge that God is where we come from or that God is our maker. Uh, and most of them also are not going to deny or challenge that we are going to return to God or we're going to be uh, come before God one day and, and hopefully spend eternity with him and and, and in his presence, but there's something in us, there's something in us that naturally resists the notion that we are accountable for our lives to someone other than, higher than ourselves. Yeah, we may pay lip service to God, the fact that he made us, there's this subtle resistance though to the notion that we will answer to God for everything that we did with the life that he gave us. Now, we, we search the scripture and there's this consistent message on every page from front to back that our lives are borrowed. Our lives are on loan. If you were to open up to the first few pages of the Bible and you return to the last few pages of the Bible, you have enough truth there to steer you in a direction to live life with and under this reminder. And along the way, we have looked at some of these verses. Uh, Genesis chapter 1 reminds us very early, of course, being the beginning, that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. And not just the male, but male and female were made in the image of God. God created us in his image as not just as in we look like God, but we have a purpose from God, designed by God, with the capacity to live for God, to glorify God. And when God made those first two, Adam and Eve, he blessed them and, and, and in them he blessed the rest of humanity. And God commanded them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. As in, there was a mandate from the very beginning. This life is not your own. Glorify God with this brief opportunity to represent him on earth. Now, more specifically, when God placed Adam and Eve in a garden designed just for them, he gave them this commandment. He put him in the garden to work it and keep it. So he gave him a responsibility. He gave him a purpose. He gave him uh, a, a life to live, a very specific calling over him to take advantage of this life given by God. It will go back to God one day. So as you prepare to return to him, take care of what he's given you and, and leverage it for his causes, for his glory. And again, that's just the simplest way we could, we could possibly explain it. And it's found on the first two pages of the Bible. But if you were to go to the very end of the Bible, 
the book of Revelation, we believe the Bible is, is comprised of 66 individual books, but all of them cohesively form the book, the one book, the inspired word of God. In, in the very last chapter of the very last book, as John, not only summing up his own book, but as he is kind of capping off the entirety of scriptures, uh, you can hear God talking to humanity as a whole once again about this ensuing and impending resolution. Revelation 22, verse 7. Notice, again, notice how it connects back to Genesis. Behold, I am coming soon. That's Jesus talking. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book, as in God has spoken over us a responsibility, an accountability, a calling, a purpose. Blessed are you. If you keep the words, again, what was the commandment in Genesis? Work it and keep it, as in be faithful to the life that God has given you to live. And here in Revelation, as Jesus promises that one day soon he is coming to bring us to him. And, and again, we'll end up with him. And he gives us this, this kind of very, very some, uh, you know, brief, but also very you know, to the point uh, you know, commandment. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy. Again, as uh, of the spoken word over us that says, hey, this is how we should live. This is why we should live the way that we uh, are called to live. And, and he goes on in verse 12 and 13. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he or she has done. Again, now recompense and repay don't have to be scary words or do, looming words uh, uh, that make us feel worried. That just means, hey, that there will be some sort of, uh, uh, there will be a recompense for the life that we live, good or bad, right? Uh, we will live in light in eternity. We will have an eternity that will be colored by the life that we lived here on earth. And, and notice how Jesus kind of frames it all for us. I'm the alpha, I'm the omega, I'm the first, I'm the last, I'm the beginning, I'm the end. I made this and one day it will come back to me. And that includes you and me. We see this clear framework that our time in between beginning and end is limited. Obviously it's finite, it's temporary. So we ought to live each day knowing that our return date, our due date, if you will, could be soon. It could be soon. Anticipating it, we should anticipate it. We should be eager for it. Later on at the very end in Revelation 22, verse 17, notice this. The spirit in the bride, that's the spirit of God, that, that is, uh, says, come and let the one who hears say, come. So there's this communication from God, from heaven to earth, from heaven and then earth to heaven, as in the spirit of God is saying, come. And then those that are on earth, us, are anticipating that. So there's this mutual expectation, right? That Jesus says, I am inviting you to come and live a life in preparation for eternity. And one day I'm going to bring you to eternity. And our response should be that same excitement, that same, yes, we are ready for you. We are prepared for you. But, but that last verse seems to suggest that, that there's something very important that we cannot afford to miss here. Our capacity for God in eternity will be directly affected by our commitment to him on earth. That our future capacity for God and, and all the zeal and the joy that we will one day experience in heaven, that that begins and that is being kind of prepared as we are committed or not committed to God here on earth. Across the last couple of weeks, we have had this pressing reminder again and again over us that one day this life will come to an end and we'll return to the one who gave us the life to begin with. 
As we do, as we approach the end of this series that really lasted longer than most of our studies do, I was taken back to the days as a kid when I would borrow something uh, and I would rent something and then there would be a day I had to give it back. Uh, and I would get a little sad. Maybe you remember those days where you borrowed something from someone, maybe for a weekend, maybe for a week, maybe for a summer or whatever, uh, and, and it came to the time that you had to give it back to the person. And maybe you would get a little bit sad. Uh, and, and again, looking back, it was kind of silly because, hey, it was just a toy. It was just a book. It was just something that you knew was not going to be yours forever anyway. Way. But maybe you remember those days where you borrowed something, and when it came time to give it back, you were a little bit, I don't really want to do this. Uh, looking back, I really shouldn't have ever been sad about it, because from the initial loan, there was always this understanding that it was going to go back into the hands of the one who gave it to me. You know, as a kid, um, maybe you can relate, and, and again, if you can't relate, you know someone that this applies to. Uh, as a kid, we often would pitch fits when we had to let go of something. Ever had to pull something away from a kid who didn't want to let it go? It gets a little bit, you know, uh, aggressive there, right? And that's just a kid's, a child's emotions, right? And, and we're no better as adults. We just conceal it a little bit. But when a child wants to hold on to something and it's time to get it out of the child's hand, it's not always the easiest thing to do, right? And we, when we were children, maybe you would pitch a fit, you would kind of have a tam tantrum or two when you had to give something back, or you had to leave, and met, right, it's time to go home, and I don't want to go home, and we're kind of clinging to the chair, clinging to something, hey, I don't want to leave. Maybe you remember that, or maybe you've seen that, and, and uh, maybe some of us, some of our memories are distant, but no matter how long ago it was, I, I bet you can remember someone else that acted that way, right? Maybe a sibling, maybe even your own children. Uh, and again, that's just our nature. We don't always want to go when it's our time to go. And, and uh, maybe we also acted out a time or two, but I think all of us could agree that there were some moments we wish we could have handled with a little more grace, right? You know, I can remember a time or two where I kind of acted like a, a spoiled brat, right? And, and, and I'm looking back, I'm like, I shouldn't have done that. I knew I was going to have to leave or I knew I was going to give it back up. Why did I act that way? Maybe you could remember acting out a little bit. And I think that gives us some insight into something regarding how we handle this life and, and how we let go of this life. As important as the condition of the item we return or how we handled it while we had it is the grace with which we let it go. And maybe you don't think about that when you're a kid, but as an adult, you think about that, don't you? That it's not just how, how what kind of condition the thing is when you turn it back in, but it's how you act. I mean, what, what, would, it, what would it say about us if we just kind of pitched a fit and said, hey, I want to give it back when it was our time to give it something back? As important as how it looks and the condition it's in and what we did with it is how we let it go and the grace that we let it go with. The hands-off attitude that we had when it was time to turn it over because we knew all along it wasn't ours. Uh, but hands-off isn't always the right phrasing. It, it's more like an intentional handing over. Why clench a fist around something that never was ours to clench? Why not be willing and ready to surrender our lives to God? So you see how this applies to our conversation about our lives being borrowed? Why cling to something that isn't ours? to cling to. Now, you and I know why we do that. It's because we, at the end of the day, don't want to admit or acknowledge that we're under someone else's accountability and authority. Our nature doesn't want to admit that, doesn't want to act like the way. But why would we cling to something whenever it's going back to God anyway? Why not be ready and willing to give it back? Not just in the future, but right now. As we've dug deeper, we've discovered that there are only, there aren't only to, we aren't only to have our hands open at the end of this life, but rather we are always to be living from a place of open-handedness, ready to let go whatever we have as God leads and guides. We've heard from all the major players in Scripture, from Moses, Samuel, Jesus, which is the big deal, Peter, 
wrote to us last week. And all of them have called us to render, which means to give, to render to God that which will return to God. Do you see that? That, hey, if we know we're going to be accountable for every detail of our life in advance, set it before him, right? In advance, put it before him and say, God, what do you want me to do with it? If we know we're going to give it back to him anyway, if we know it's going to go back to him anyway, if we know we're going to be accountable for what we did with it anyway, in advance, render to him what will return to him. And what was the reasoning? In order to optimize our temporary stay for maximum glory. But, but here's what I know. As convicting as all of this that we've talked about was and is, it can actually lead us to a place and leave us at a place where we wonder what we're really supposed to do. We hear these commandments, bring it all to God, dedicate it all to God, glorify God with it all and through it all, surrender to God, be a living sacrifice. But what does that look like practically? And we've intentionally left the door open because I've wanted you to think about what does it look like practically? We hear these broad general commands. We maybe feel bad and we go to God in prayer and say, I surrender it all to you, God. But most likely, a lot of us, and I'll be honest, me included, a lot of us, we say those things, but we don't really change anything. We mention it to God in prayer. And maybe you're like me and there's this lingering thought in the back of your mind that admits, I've surrendered but I haven't rendered anything. I've surrendered in, in a posture, but I've not rendered something to God in practice. Do y'all follow me there? I've took the posture in worship of saying, God, I surrender, but I really haven't changed anything. Can anybody, maybe you don't want to say it out loud, but can you relate there? That we say it on Sundays and we sing it in our songs, but when you really put the, micro, you know, the microscope over our lives, our lives don't look any different. We've surrendered, but what have we rendered? What have we handed over? So we have to be sure to put the render in surrender. Otherwise, it's just for looks. Otherwise, who are we fooling? I mean, it's, it's, if it's, all of this is just for show, if it's just posturing and gesturing and, and signaling, I mean, what, God sees through all that, doesn't he? And a lot of times, that's what church is for most people. It's just kind of the posture. It's just the presentation of it all. But I don't want that to be where it is for you because I want better for you, and God wants better for us, and God expects better of us, honestly. I'm, I'll admit, I've saying I surrender all, but I haven't all, always changed things like I should change things. I come to terms with my life being barred and set to return, but I haven't changed anything. Maybe that's what you'll confess, or you've confessed. The last few weeks, we've left the door open to, to, to see what God would have us to do. The idea that God would tell us what we should do. And the good news is, we don't have to wait for the Spirit to move us. We don't have to pray about it. God has already told us what to do. Maybe you've already discovered it, but today, we'll make sure that there's no stone left unturned. We don't have to wait for the Spirit to move. We don't have to wait for God to say something because God has already said something. The Bible doesn't just call us to bring things to God and surrender and, and with vague posturing just to coax our consciences. And it, This isn't therapy. This isn't just about making us feel better. This is about making us better, making us transformed. Peter taught us last week it makes us holy, making us holy to the Lord and making us whole as people. 
The Bible actually has specific matter-of-fact commands as to what we should do in order that we rightly manage this life, in order to properly uh, obey God with our lives. Ultimately, this is about making us more holy, more godly, and as we'll discover, it's about adopting and developing habits that God himself practices. And this takes us back to the idea of open-handedness, the idea that we often resist opening our hands to God, uh, which that we never become like God because we are so clenched fist in and of ourselves. But what we've learned, what we have learned and will learn across uh, our conversation today, that we should not just be eager to surrender in places like this, but render our lives and our talent and our resources over to God because our lives are borrowed, our lives are on loan. This isn't a rent-to-own scenario. This isn't where certain people qualify to purchase things and have the outright control. Whether we have a lot or a little, whether we're somebody, nobody, or somewhere in between, our lives belong to God and we are accountable to God and for what he's placed in our hands. And, 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 and God forbid anything have to be pried from our hands at any point in time because in the end, it will simply be taken. So if we're gonna lose it anyway, why not lose it the right and only way? Why would we be fooled by our own agency to think that we should ever put it, pull back on what God is commanding us pass along? Now, I know why we pull back. I know why I pull back, and I think you know why you pull back, because that's our nature. But if anything has happened in this series, it's hopefully exposed to us that our nature deceives us into believing unrealistic things about our futures. And not only our future, but our present reality and the nature of things that we've got our hands on. And Jesus actually told a parable and actually preached a sermon that we're all familiar with that might be a little morbid and might make us uncomfortable, but is so very enlightening. All four gospels have a variation of this sermon, but that's the thing. They're all unique, which means that Jesus preached this as many times, many more times than just once in his ministry. Luke's version is especially insightful, perhaps the most sobering and clarifying Uh, which is why I think it's the best place for us to begin to wrap up this conversation. So Luke 9, verse number 23, Jesus says to them all, which is to everyone that's listening, following him, Jesus says to them all, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily. That's unique to Luke, but not something we should pass by too quickly. Take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him, the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory, in his fathers, in his, of the holy angels. But I tell you truly that there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. So in the first few verses there, Jesus equates following him to surrendering to him. I think we all can agree there. That's pretty clear, pretty simple, pretty self-evident. And I know this is graphic, but literally what he says is that it's like denying yourself. That following him, whoever desires to come after me, whoever desires to follow me, he says it's like denying yourself and bearing a cross. Do you see that? Take up your cross daily. If you're going to follow me, this is what it's like. It's like bearing a Roman cross. Now, for us, the cross is this romanticized object that we associate with church and we associate with Jesus and we associate with good feelings. But for his direct audience, the cross was a horrifying thing. 
They had seen hundreds of people crucified. They knew dozens of people who had been crucified. And it was a glory spectacle that every citizen had to watch and live in fear because of. Nobody, nobody, nobody ever voluntarily took up a Roman cross. Because a Roman cross was the death penalty. It was the most torturous way to die. They had all seen what it looked like to be crucified. You were beaten, you were weakened, and you were stretched out and nailed to a cross. Suffering, bleeding out, in desolation, isolation, humiliation. Yet Jesus says, and I don't think we should move past this very quickly. Jesus says, to follow me, to follow Jesus is to take up a cross willingly and eagerly. You know what this means? It means that following him, following God's will for our life, will most likely conflict with our wills for our lives. And maybe I'm being generous with the most likely. Maybe it's definitely, right? If he's equating following him to bearing a Roman cross, I think we can agree that it's going to be different than what we would intend it to be. Not that it's bad or a dreadful thing, but because our flesh naturally, foolishly, and ignorantly is convinced that it knows best. As much as we might naturally resist this, Jesus speaks life to our souls and says, you know, and he says, you can trust me. And you know why we can trust Jesus? Because he himself would spread his arms out and be nailed to a cross in pursuit of God's will, not only for his life, but for us. He gave his life away so that we might find it and understand that life is best lived with our arms spread and our hands open, pouring ourselves out to God and even for others. But here's, there's more here before we get to that. Verse 24 and 25, Jesus kind of gives us this logic that we're going to lose this life. If we try to preserve it, no one has ever been successful at preserving their life, right? The best doctors, the best treatment, the most money, everyone eventually loses it. It's just reality, right? That no one has ever successfully saved their life. So if you know you're going to lose it anyway... If we're going to lose it anyway, why not lose it in a way that we'll be proud of one day? That's what he's saying here. The one who loses his life for my sake will save it. Do you really want to look back at your life from eternity and think, wow, all I ever did was the equivalent of pitch a fit, throw a tantrum, and brute force my getting my way? Is that a good look? Is that a good weight over your eternity? Because all I ever did was want my way, and boy, I got my way. But hey, I lost it anyway. When we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that should be. But if we get to heaven and all we ever did on earth was cling to something that was fleeting and passing away, and at that point is gone, how happy will we be? How at home will we be if we live this life clinging to what we eventually lost? You know, thinking about those moments when, when it, as kids we acted out a particular way or that person that behaved in that way that was unbecoming for a Christian made me think about this this week. And it begs the question, what kind of person do we want to be remembered as? What kind of person am I preparing to be remembered as? If your life is not your own, long after you're gone, what will be the story that's told about you? Maybe you don't care. But long after you're gone, what will be the story that's told about you? 
Jesus is the person that gives this life away, setting themselves up for the greatest fame on earth and eternity, but more importantly, setting themselves up for the greatest, fame, greatest gain in eternity. Think about those people that you know, that you remember, that you would say were impossible not to like. You know those people? They were just impossible not to think, wow, what, what, kind, of, what kind of salt of the earth person are they? They were the people that live with open hands. They were the people that you watched be so generous and so kind, and you thought to yourself, how could anyone live like that? I couldn't live like that, but they're so golden, they're so generous, they're so gracious. How could anybody be that way? Think about the people that went out of their way to help, to help you, and they didn't ask for anything, and they didn't allow you to do anything for them in return. They saw a need, and they stepped up, and they did it. They didn't talk themselves out of it. They didn't walk by and ignore it. They didn't look for reasons to excuse themselves. They were driven by a purpose that required them to live for somebody besides themselves. Maybe you have a memory of someone like that and you think to yourself, they're one of a kind. One of a kind. But they don't have to be. And come on, they shouldn't be one of a kind. Because Jesus says this is the way of a Christ follower. Someone who sees more to gain in a life surrender to God than a life of self-preservation and self-dedication. Jesus remarks that those who live in self-preservation are living as, God's, as if God's way is disappointing. As if they're ashamed of God's way. That's what he means in verse 26. That if we live in a way that we think that God's plans for us are less than our plans for us, we're saying, God, I'm ashamed of your plans. Your plans are disappointing to me, so I'm not going to consider them. In verse 27, Jesus suggests that those who are all in on God's plan of giving their lives away they don't have to wait to experience and participate in God's kingdom when they die. But they actually gain early access into God's kingdom here on earth. Because they are literally following his steps while they wait for his return. And I got to tell you, this, this really caused people to perk up and think, what? What do you mean early access? We, we think of the kingdom of God as this future reality. And there is indeed obviously more ahead than there is behind or current. And we've talked about this throughout this series. We're headed towards that reality at a rapid pace. But it's our current path and the trail that we are leaving behind that confirms our future entrance and determines our level of participation. And that's what Jesus is teasing out here. Saying that the one who chooses to lose their life for his sake immediately begins experiencing the gain. Again, I can't emphasize enough how much this would have stirred up the religious leaders and those who spent their days trying to wrap their minds around the kingdom of God. And just a few days after this, when a certain expert of the Jewish law and religion came to him with tons of questions, Jesus took the opportunity to further explain what he meant in this precious chapter. This time, he doesn't paint with broad brushstrokes. This time, he is crystal clear in detailing what it means to surrender, what this early access into God's kingdom looks like. Flip over to chapter 10, verse 25, and listen to how this goes down and how he puts a bow on this point. It says, behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? 
So along comes a lawyer, an expert in the Jewish law and scriptures, with the question, how do I know that I'll get to participate in God's kingdom? I think I know, but I want to hear what you say, Jesus. I want to hear what you have to say. And you've already been saying, saying some things that make me question whether or not you and I are on the same page. They always reduce God's kingdom to a place in a physical move that would be required. But Jesus already made it known. There was a spiritual walk that began now that would precede our future move. This guy was asking, how do I get a reserved seat? So Jesus plays along with him and says, okay, you know the law. You are an expert in the Jewish scriptures. What does the Bible say? Now, this lawyer, as we'll find out, has already played all this out in his head. He has figured out, he thinks he has it all figured out. And everyone had figured out that, that Jesus And they'd heard that Jesus taught that those destined for the future in God's kingdom could clearly be detected and recognized in this life by their lives. So Jesus didn't believe it was some question, it was some mystery. He didn't think, he made it clear that salvation is not some Rubik's Cube that was impossible to crack, uh, that it wouldn't be a surprise as in who ended up in the kingdom because it was a clear lifestyle of those who are already in, of those who had early access. But the lawyer, as well as many others around him, wondered this. In what way and to what extent do we have to give this life away in order to take hold of eternal life today, tomorrow, and forever? Because what did Jesus teach us in the last chapter? If you want to follow me, you've got to give it away. If you want to be in God's kingdom, give your life away. Pour your life out. Surrender to God. Render it all to God. Lose your life for my sake to find it. And these lawyers, these experts heard Jesus say this stuff and they didn't really like what he was saying, but they wanted to know more about what he meant. To what extent do I have to give it away? To what extent do I have to pour myself out? And the lawyer knew that Jesus had earlier been asked, what is the greatest commandment? What is the ultimate commandment that we must live our lives by? And he knew that Jesus had responded a particular way. So he was ready to respond to Jesus with that same answer. Remember, Jesus one time was asked, what's the greatest commandment? And he said, there's not just one. He said, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and with your mind. This is the great first commandment. But there's not just one, there's two, because it's like a coin with two sides. The first commandment is love God, but the same coin has a backside that is as important as the front side. You love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And the second commandment is just like it, as in just as important as it. And part of us says, I don't know about that. But Jesus said this, so hey, love your neighbor as yourself. So the lawyer is quick to repeat what Jesus said earlier, hoping that Jesus will explain what he doesn't understand. So the lawyer says in verse 27, when Jesus says, hey, what's what's the law say? The lawyer says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Okay, Jesus, I've been listening. I know what you said earlier. You love God. You love people. This was the backbone of Jesus' message, by the way. He made it very clear. Surrendering our life went hand in hand with knitting our hearts to God. But Jesus didn't preach some loose, wide-open message about loving God that can be taken a million different ways. Jesus made it clear that loving God was directly tied to loving others. That's what the verse says, right? Jesus said this, and this is what he taught, that love for God is demonstrated and validated by love for others. That love for God that doesn't translate to and doesn't produce love for others isn't genuine. That's what Jesus taught. So here's this lawyer. He knew that Jesus wanted him to say, love God, love others. 
But again, the reason the lawyer even came that day was because he finally wanted to understand what kind of love was Jesus expecting out of him. Because he could say he loved God and nobody could question that. But if, he, if, if Jesus is saying that he's got to love people in order to love God or he's got to love people in order to validate his love for God, as in his love for God isn't real if he doesn't love people, the lawyer is, is kind of wiggling around thinking, man, if, 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 it's, if it's based on how I treat people, I can't hide behind that. I mean, I can say I love God. Nobody can question that because they don't know what I do when nobody's looking. But people see me and I can't get away from that reality. I can't get out from under that accountability. So he's wanting to know... What kind of love is Jesus really expecting out of us? So while Jesus commends him in verse 28, he says, you have answered rightly, do this and you will live. The lawyer doesn't sit down. Because the lawyer had come with a question the whole time. He was waiting to get, be able to ask this question. This is the reason why this happened, why he set all this up. Verse 29. But wanting to justify himself or wanting to justify his behavior... He said to Jesus, who's my neighbor? You see, Jesus, this is why I really come today. I've heard you talk about pouring yourself out, and that means loving God, loving people, giving your life away. Love God, love people. Love people, but if you love God, if you don't love people, you don't really love God. Okay, Jesus, who is my neighbor? Because here's why I really want to talk to you, Jesus, is you can't be asking me to love most people. See, the lawyer is asking what is the minimum amount of love for my neighbor required to get me into God's kingdom? That's what it means by justify himself. What is the least I've got to do to get in? Because I'm going to go ahead and tell you, Jesus, I'm going to do the least I've got to do because I'm not about to love certain people. Now, they heard Jesus loud and clear. They assumed that there had to be an asterisk on neighbor. He, of course, could not be expecting us to love everybody. I mean, come on. This was especially challenging to the Jews because they wondered, how do you skirt the rules? I mean, anybody can say they love God. Anybody can say, I've dedicated this to God. But when it comes to loving people, there's nowhere to hide, right? You see, the religious could easily justify their behavior when it seemed it conflicted with their professing love. But they, they could wave their hands and say, well, you just don't see what my love for God looks like. I love God differently than you. But there was really no place to hide when it comes to loving people. There's nowhere to hide when it comes to loving people, is there? You either do or you don't. The lawyer couldn't help himself and said that there's part of, he said the part that everyone was thinking out loud. There's got to be some bare minimum level of love required so that we can experience the best of both worlds. Pour a little bit out, but still keep as much as I can for myself. Because otherwise, the loving neighbor part can get out of hand very quickly. Now, you see why Jesus equates the two because you, it makes it very simple. But this was, was not so simple for the Jews. They'd already made their mind up that the only people you would ever assume were your neighbors were those of your own race, those that were other Jews, but even they didn't even love all the Jews. So this lawyer is really saying, okay, Jesus, I know that technically all Jews are my neighbors, but you don't expect me to love every Jew equally, do you? I mean, not all the Jews are good. Not all of them are faithful, so I don't have to love all of them, do I? So the man asked, who is my neighbor? But here's the question he should have asked. What does neighbor love look like and act like? The better question would have been, what is God like? So that I know how he treats people so I can treat people the way God treats people. And if God treats people differently, then maybe I've got an excuse. But that's not what he asked, right? He wanted to know, what's the bare minimum? 
So Jesus doesn't answer the question because he never answered the question directly. He tells a story. He tells a story. And you all know the story, but this would have been so disruptive for them to hear. Listen to how Jesus describes what following him looks like and really what it, how God is described. And he tells us what love, loving our neighbor looks like and in turn what it looks like to love God, to give our lives to God. He says in verse 30, And Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. So they left this guy for dead. We don't know anything about the story, but the guy was leaving Jerusalem, so he must have been a religious man, because why would he have been in Jerusalem? You would go there on pilgrimage to go to the temple. So he was leaving the temple. He was leaving the city of worship. He was going back home to Jericho. The man gets robbed and gets thrown in a ditch. And along comes two potential saviors. Now by chance, a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise, a Levite, which was a temple worker, who when he arrived at the place, he came and he looked and he thought, hey, the guy's still alive, but hey, I didn't really, he didn't see me, so I don't have to worry about that. And he passed by on the other side. So these two religious leaders, seeing the bruised man bleeding, a Jewish neighbor declined to help. They must have justified their behavior. Well, they must have thought this guy had it coming. Only people that deserve to be robbed are robbed. Only people that deserve to be beat up and left in a ditch are left in a ditch. So I don't have to help this guy. The law says don't kill someone. The law does not say you have to keep someone from dying. Because clearly this guy was judged by God. We don't have to help this guy. He should have helped himself. And they walk on. Now listen. Listen to what the implications are. If what Jesus said and taught is really the standard, if loving God equals loving neighbor, you, you, you can't have one without the other. So what does that say about these two guys? They're doomed. They didn't love their neighbor, which means they didn't love God. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Oh, yeah, they, were, they were priests. They were Levites. They were temple workers. They were professional religious people. They didn't love their neighbor. So according to Jesus, they didn't love God. They had just worshipped, but they weren't bearing a cross. They weren't giving their lives away. They may have just proclaimed they did with their worship, but they proved they didn't. But they're woke. Now, Jesus could have ended the parable there and we would be convicted enough, right? But he doesn't end the parable there. But a certain Samaritan. Now, you have to know that Samaritans are loathed by the Jews. Jews didn't like Samaritans. Samaritans didn't like the Jews. And here Jesus is about to make the Samaritan the hero. And more unnerving, in every parable that Jesus told, somebody represents God. It's not the guy in the ditch. It's not the two religious men. Is he about to make the Samaritan the God stand-in? Well, you answer that for yourselves. What does he say? A certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He was moved by compassion. 
And Jesus just rubbed salt in the wound of the religious people. Look at verse 34. And he went to him, he bandaged his wounds, he touched the man's uncleanness, he poured oil and wine on him, he set him on his own animal, he brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he departed. He took two denarii, which is about two, two weeks' worth of room and board. He gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him. Whatever you spend, I will come again. As I'm going to come back and check on the guy. And when I come back, I'll repay you. Man. You know, this was a shocking story to hear, but sadly, it's still shocking for us to hear. Because who could be that nice? Who could be that loving? Who could be that kind? Listen to what Jesus does next, and his audience could never fully appreciate this. He redefines neighbor for every generation. He expands it by, beyond proximity, beyond religion, beyond race, and he does this with a megaton question that forces us to examine our hearts and the thing that clenches a fist when it comes to giving to those that are not like us, that we'd rather not give to and love. In verse 36, he says, So which of these three do you think was a neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? Which one do you think was a neighbor? By, by virtue, which one do you think loved God the way I've established? You must. Which of these three loved God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength by loving a stranger as himself? Now, the lawyer doesn't know what if he can or should answer the question because suddenly his accountability would be undeniable and he wouldn't be able to hide it. So listen to how the law lawyer wiggles his way out of this. And he said... He who showed mercy. Because he hated Samaritans so much he couldn't even say the word. The one who had mercy, who saw the need and met it and didn't ask for anything back, who didn't talk themselves out of it. And Jesus smiles and rubs his hands together and he says, Go and do likewise. So you want to participate in God's kingdom now? So you want to be prepared for God's kingdom next? Go and do likewise. Go and be the Samaritan. That's what bearing your cross looks like. That's what surrender and render looks like. Suddenly neighbor love has no bounds and because God's love has no boundaries. And again, back in verse 36, do we, have, do we feel like we have to twist the story to make these two religious men excused? There's no way we can do that, right? It forces us to see ourselves in the story and compare our own experiences. And because we all want to justify ourselves, we have so many questions and feel like it can't be so black and white. It can't be so clear. And we, we want to say, Justin, my love for God, it can't be paywalled behind my love for others. My treatment of others, my willingness and readiness to give to others, that does not determine my heart for God. But Jesus says, yes, it does. You know what the, you know what the striking blow about these religious men was? They were completely unmoved and completely unbothered by the man in the ditch. Church, I know there's just a few of us here today and there's a whole lot of problems in the world that people, other people are responsible for, but don't you think that's a big problem in the world today? That, that Christians are unmoved and unbothered And you know what Jesus says? That if we're unmoved and unbothered, we're uninitiated into the kingdom of God. That's not my words, right? 
Do you want to make it known to the world that you're prepared for another world? Jesus made that path very clear. It's impossible to miss it. Many, many religious people will ignore this and other justify, uh, other justify their behavior, but Jesus offers us one way. It's the way of the cross. He gave up his life so that we might could be saved, and if we've been saved, he's changed our hearts. The cross directs our lives. We love God, and we love others. There's a vertical beam, and there's a horizontal beam. The vertical beam says God is number one. I love him, but I'm doing it with my arms spread wide, and my arms spread wide make it very clear that my love for others is communicating my love for God that there is no love for God with my hands simply folded that it's always a love for others that validates, that demonstrates, that authenticates our love for, uh, for God. We are to lay our lives down because he laid his life down for us. We pour ourselves out because he poured himself out for us and we pour ourselves out for others because that's what it looks like. To serve Jesus. You want to make a big difference in the world? Stop living for yourself. That's what will make the world stop and think, wow, they're different. Wow, they're not normal. Wow, they're not worried about number one. They're worried about everybody else. The guy in the ditch, leave him to himself. He deserves it. But we say, no, 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 no. Not in our kingdom. Jesus said, if you know you're going to lose it anyway, why not lose it in a way that makes a difference eternally? That's what wires your heart to God and shows his heart to more. And John, the number one follower of Jesus, said, by this we know love. He laid his life down for us. We ought to lay down our lives for the brothers or for the neighbors. He says, but if anyone who has the world's goods and sees his brother or sister in need, that he closes his heart, how, how, how does God's love abide in him? You know how convicting that is to me? You know how tempting it is for me to go day after day and not love people because I don't like certain people and I'm not happy about certain things? You know how easy it is for me to not love people? You know what John says to me? You do not love God. You don't. And shame on you for thinking you do. You know why John's so serious? Because the world depends on this. Salvation depends on this. John says... Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts. If we reassure our hearts by anything else, we have a false hope. Jesus is our only hope by living for him and being like him. It's the only way to prepare ourselves for eternity. If we look in front of this mirror today, what do we see? Do we like what we see? Are we ashamed of what we see? Because what we see is what is being prepared for eternity. Is your reflection convincing? When we return to God, what will our stories tell? Ultimately, it doesn't matter if I convince you or you convince anybody else. What matters is, does our walk, does our walk match our worship? Our early participation in God's kingdom today reveals our eternal preparation. Our lives are borrowed. Our lives are alone. They're going back to God, and this is what we'll be judged by. How did we give our lives away? For whom and to whom did we give our lives away? There's a lot of problems in the world. But the problem that matters to me is how I show God's love to those that are not like me. That's what God says I should be most concerned about. Because that reflects my love for him. Church, thank you for being here today. Thank you for letting God speak to us today. The most convicted person in the room is right in front of you because this is so easy to ignore.
But Jesus says this is everything. You want to change the world? You do it one person at a time. You love them like God has loved you. You'd be surprised what kind of difference you might make. I'm praying for you. Father, thank you so much for giving us this reminder and reflecting back to us what it means to give our lives away. We can talk vaguely about it all the time and we can surrender and we can leave church and never change. But God, you want to see us make a difference. And God, I think that the greatest problem in the world today is the unbotheredness and unmovedness of Christians. And Lord, everybody here today, I believe they have a good heart. I believe they love you and that they're pursuing you. Yet I believe there's a disconnect in a lot of our lives from what we do here and what we do out there. A lot of us are like that religious man that tried to justify himself and say, what's the bare minimum I've got to do? And then Jesus tells a parable about a guy who gave everything to a guy he didn't even know. That's what we're called to do. Father, I pray you would break my heart for people. Break my heart for that person that I have every reason to not love and every reason to ignore. But you love them so much. You love them that you sent Jesus to die for them. And you're waiting on me to show them that. God, would you stir my heart? Would you stir our hearts that we might would live a life that is prepared to be given away, that's prepared to go back to you? God, would you stir us up? Would you shake us up? Would you make us a people who are moved with compassion for a world that is so dark and a world that's hurting? Because Jesus says that is what makes the difference. God, if there's somebody here today that has never received your love and has never understood that you love them this much, that you would put everything on the line for people like them, would you let them receive it today and come to you and believe for the first time? Because you love them like they are and you accept them as they are. And they can go and tell the world that way. It's for them too. We ask this in Jesus' name.